Please turn your Bibles with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 20. Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 20. My premise this morning is the Christian religion wants more for you than you want for yourself, or maybe that you know to want for yourself. The Christian religion, or Christ, wants more for you than you want for yourself. We want to think about that this morning, what we want for ourselves and what the Christian religion proposes for us. When we read in John 12, we're going to find... We want life. Christ addresses life eternal. Like a child that doesn't want an early bedtime so they can enjoy Easter egg hunting the next morning. Or wants to eat all the candy at once and get a bellyache. They know what they think they want, and we can relate with this, but they don't actually know what they need. They don't yet ask the better questions. They don't yet have the better desires. We think we want that relationship. We think we want that identity. We think we want this job or that vehicle or that home or that retirement or that wealth. But we don't know better. We do not know better. There is freedom found in self-forgetfulness. Not Buddhist, not complete self-forgetfulness, but Christian self-forgetfulness, self-forgetfulness. A reorientation, as we talked about last week on Palm Sunday, from our glorification to Christ's glorification, that we might see what He has for us in Him, in Christ. A lot of the quality of our lives, of your life and my life, will be based on whom you choose to trust. Some of you can attest to this because you've trusted someone that has, has mishandled your trust, has broken your trust. Do I trust this person or that person? We, we all need our guides, right? I say often in this church that one of the most important spiritual decisions we'll ever make is who we'll have as our elders. Who is it we will choose to voluntarily submit to in the faith? Because it's not submission when I agree. It's, it's submission when this is what the Word of God says, and this needs to change, and I, I submit to the Word of God. Not blindly, but it's not blind trust to trust. It's just trust. Whom do I trust? You know, maybe you've been burned to the point that you only trust yourself. It seems like a safe place to be, doesn't it? But that doesn't leave room for trusting in Jesus by His Word, now does it? And that's exactly what the Christian religion proposes, is that you trust in Jesus by His Word. Who is it that knows better than you do what needs to come next? On what basis does that person know? Does Jesus know? Is there anything that could be taught from the Word of God today that if it was not what you believe and think, that you'd be willing to change what you believe and think? 
in order to comply with the Word of God? Is there anything? Because if there isn't anything, then honestly, this is not a worshipful exercise. This is a perfunctory exercise. But no, we're the people that come to the Word today hungry, right? Because we're the people that know that we don't always know. We're the people that know we don't always know best. Time and time again, I thought I knew, but God taught me by His Word better. Isn't that your testimony? I thought I knew, but God taught me by His Word better. It gets down to, to the very nature of the questions we ask, the fixes we want, the needs that we portray. And our text today gets into the nature of true discipleship. Often we want a religion that serves us, makes us comfortable, and answers all our questions, real and perceived, reassures all our presuppositions. But Jesus calls us to serve. He calls us to troubled times. He calls us to unanswered questions, to believe before we become sons of light. I'm reminded of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship. And he wrote, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. He bids him come and die. This holiday makes me think about dates. I was thinking uh, about how this is my 20th year here. And I was thanking God for that. And I visited with Miss Mildred Yunker this past week. And I hope you'll pray for her. She turned 90 recently. And she's in a, in a rehabilitation center recovering from, from an infection in her knee. And she became a widow last July. Her and her husband were married for 72 years, 1948. And they were, they were here in this church uh, just mostly every week. They were always here. Uh, very faithful. Very faithful. And Miss Mildred will be with us if she could, and she wants to be with us real soon. I hope you'll pray for her. Nine years old. Her husband got to meet Jesus last July. I was thinking of dates. I was thinking of 82 years ago this Friday, April 9th, 1945, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hanged. He was hanged for his part in the conspiracy to assassinate Adolf Hitler. And that sentence I read to you a while ago was a sentence he wrote about discipleship. When Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. Here's the longer quote. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life. No, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow Jesus, or it may be a death like Martin Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world, but it is the same 
death every time, death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his upward call. The Christian religion wants more for you than you want for yourself, particularly before you come to faith in Christ. But we are prone to wander and to need to be reminded that the Christian religion wants more for me than I know to want for myself. 1990 years ago, Jesus was days away from His hanging for a battle being won. When He was in Jerusalem for Passover and was approached by Gentiles, by Greeks, as our text will refer to today. And that got Jesus musing on and talking about what was about to happen. For the hour had come where not only Jews would hear the gospel, but Greeks would too. That's most of us, Gentiles. And it ought to get us thinking too about what Jesus has for us in our following of Him. Listen to John chapter 12, beginning in verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks or Gentiles. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Together they went and told him. Verse 23. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. They might stop and say, that really doesn't address the question. They wanted an audience with you. Why do you say that? And the rest of the text kind of unfolds that. So the hour has come. The time has come. Previously in John, the hour hadn't yet come. But now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said, that it had thundered. Others said, an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. Now it's getting serious, isn't it? We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Thinking of Ezekiel, Son of Man, the prophets, the fulfillment of the prophets with the Messiah. Who is this? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. May God bless the reading of his word and administer grace unto the hearers. It is nice to be among so many friends today, among so many hearers. I want to talk to you from verses 20 
to 26 about, will you serve me? I want to talk to you from verses 27 to 33 about, will you give me a miracle? And I want to talk to you from verses 34 to 36 about, will you answer all my questions? That's the three things I want to talk to you about the remainder of our time. The first one is the implicit question we have in the Christian religion to the Lord Jesus, will you serve me? The second one is, will you give me a miracle? Will you give me an experience? Will you give me a miracle? And the third one is, will you answer all my questions? Will you help me with my interpretive issues? Now, let's consider this today on its parts. Will you serve me? Will you serve me? Consider verses 20 to 22. Now, among those who went up to worship, they were coming indeed to worship God. They were coming to the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. They were coming in for Passover. But these were not Jews. These were Greeks. Perhaps they had come down from the Decapolis and knew of Jesus' ministry there. Perhaps they had heard because of all of the hubbub around Jesus' triumphal entry. Perhaps they had heard of Jesus. But either way, they're asking to gain an audience with Jesus. And this gets Jesus talking about what he's thinking about. He doesn't. There's no recording of him giving an audience to these Greeks that wanted to talk to him. But there is a recording of him offering some comments based on the non-Jewish people wanting to have an audience with him. And so let's reflect on, on what he said. It seems that Philip and Andrew are somewhat ancillary to this, these, these disciples that bring the word to Jesus. But Jesus answers the request of the Gentiles to come to him, the request of this Christian religion, as we now know it, being available to non-Jewish people, he offers this kind of musing. He says in verse 23, Jesus answered them now, or implied, the hour now has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You might stop and say to yourself after verse 23, I thought he got killed. What's glorifying about getting killed? Well, the reality is that from the foundations of the earth, the plan of God was to redeem your cold, dead soul through Jesus being lifted up on a cross. And the reality is that, in fact, He was glorified through the manner in which He died. And while there are many parallels that cannot be made between us and Jesus, this is one that can be made. When Jesus calls a man to Himself, He bids him come to die. In fact, your honor comes in your willingness to face death or even to die for your witness to Christ. John's gospel is always difficult on this score. When Jesus had a big people, batch of people following him, listening to his teachings in John chapter 6 records it, there's a point along the way where he nails down deep with deeper discipleship and this sort of call if he if, if you want to follow Jesus, He calls you to abandon what you think you want and to discover what He has for you. And a whole bunch of people just stop following Jesus right there. Like, they just, they're just gone. And Jesus is like, a, do you, you want to go too? He says to the last disciple standing. And Peter says, you may remember this verse in John 66, 65, 66, 67. He says, where else would we go, Jesus? You have the words of eternal life. Where else would we go? In other words, we're backed into a corner here, Jesus. I mean, where are we going to go? You've got the words of eternal life. Like, that is 
It wasn't always Peter's attitude, right? We know Peter had ups and downs, but that is a, a brilliant statement, isn't it? Where would we go? I mean, I don't really understand what you're doing in my life, Jesus. I don't get how, like, if I don't understand how you being killed is going to somehow help my situation. I don't get that. But I don't know where else to go. Like, you've got the words of eternal life. And he doesn't just do it for us, which he does. He also calls us to it. That is the life of Christian discipleship that bids a man come to die. He calls us from what we think we want to what we actually need. And I mean, this is a real nub of the sermon. It's, it's really a gut check for all of us. Because Jesus calls us to humility before honor. In fact, if you look at verse 26 at the very end of it, the Father will honor him. Well, what type of person experiences the honor of the Father? What type of person experiences the honor of a father? Well, look at that verse right above it. If anyone serves me, it says in verse 26, he must follow me. Well, follow me where and how? Well, if you're a servant of Christ, you must follow him. And where I am, there will be my servant also, signifying the manner in which he would die, that he would, he would die for his faith. We must, we must die to our sin. He died for our sin. He says, if anyone serves me, then the Father will honor him. Now, this is an interesting word, serves. Remember, I framed this point about, we ask of the Lord, will you serve me? Will you give me something? Will you serve me? Well, this is interesting because the word serves, both in its noun and its verbal form here, is the word by which we derive deacon. So you'll find eight of them walking around here uh, this morning or so with a little badge that says deacon. And what that means is exemplary servant. In the New Testament, that word means servant. And so it's translated here servant because it's not talking about an official title, a deacon. But in a sense, we're all called to deaconing. When Jesus calls a man to himself, he calls him to be a deaconing, a servant. If anyone would deacon me, he must follow me. If he would serve me, he must follow me where I'm going. And then the Father will honor him. It's, it's honor in glorific, the glorification of Christ through his death on a cross. It's honor for us in believing, of course, in that death of Christ and receiving all that, but it's also honor for us to follow in the way of Christ in Christian discipleship and to die to ourselves that we might live the life that he has for us. And this, as Colossians says, is an ongoing death. I mean, you don't just receive Christ and all of a sudden you're mature. I mean, you're wandering in here this morning, some of you, and you're, you're, you're kind of a badgered Christian, and it's a sense in which the Christian year starts again as we gather for Easter for you, and you need the rejuvenation that comes from the Word of God that says, you are not finished. Christ is still working on you. He is sanctifying you, and one day you will be glorified. You'll have a glorified body, and you will sin no more. But this is a war in this life, and it is a war to die to our former manner of living. It is a war. And it's a war that these first followers didn't understand. And it's a war that we have more data with 2,000 years and the rest of the Bible, but we still don't understand. 
And that is the true nature of Christian discipleship. That is that the Christian religion wants more for you than you want for yourself. You think when you come to Jesus, I surmise, Jesus, will you serve me? Will you give me something? And what he says to these inquirers, for that matter, from every tribe and tongue, because this just opens the thing up wide. It's not just Orthodox Jews. He's calling in all the nations. We see a fulfillment of the promises from Isaiah and otherwise. The gospel would come to everyone. So everyone, every people group may be saved, but they must come to Christ. And he answers them with, it's time for me to die. And if you want to follow me, you, like me, need to serve, not seek to be served. What an important principle for us today, isn't it? Friend, do you feel an entitled mentality where you're entitled to be served? I ought to have this and I ought to have that. I should have this kind of job. I should have that kind of house. I should have this kind of materials. I should have those kinds of clothes. Jesus never sanctifies or whitewashes our selfish desires of entitlement. He calls us not to be served, but to serve and to give our lives as a ransom for many. That's what he did for us. And when we come to Christ, we find the joy in Christian discipleship is the kernel of wheat that is our lives, dying, falling, that then much fruit may be born. He sets it up as a model for us. I'm thinking of this time of the year. In our midst, we have more than one farmer. And you're getting ready to put seed in the ground, and it's going to grow up, right? This metaphor here in Scripture should mean something to you and to us. By the way, pray for the farmers. They spend about three months trying to figure this thing out, and their wives and family barely sees them, and they're throwing them, uh, you know, they're throwing them poor man's steak up on the on the tractor. We call that baloney. That's what Grandpa Watson called it, poor man's steak. Throwing them a baloney sandwich with mustard and cheese. I'm sure on it up on the tractor so they can get the stuff in the ground so we can all eat. Be thankful for farmers. Pray for farmers. Pray for their families. Jesus understood the necessity of agricultural metaphors. Look at verse 34. He says, Unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What does it mean to walk with Christ? Well, it means to serve first instead of seeking simply to be served. He's served us our greatest needs anyway. This is a problem for those coming as Greeks. It's a problem for the generationally endowed Jews. Let's move forward. Now, shall we? Verses 27 through 33. The first question that we ask is, will you serve me? The second question that we ask is, will you give me a miracle? Will you give me experiences? And boy, do we ever trip over this, don't we? We trip over this. We call it the prosperity gospel oftentimes. It's, we, we want a sign. We demand a sign. You know, when, when, when Jesus was being faced with the demand for a sign, one of the things that he said was, I'm not going to give you a sign but the sign of Jonah. And the sign of Jonah was, repent of your sin. In other words, Jesus doesn't do signs on command. That's not how it works. And in fact, if we were going to ask for a sign, if we were going to ask for all of our troubles to be fixed in this life now as a precondition or a condition for our followership of Jesus, well, we would never get there because he doesn't operate on those terms. When you say jump, Jesus doesn't say how high. 
So if, if your vindictiveness toward Jesus, putting him on trial, is only resolved when he does some experience, some miracle for you, you won't be saved. You won't be regenerate because he doesn't jump when you say how high. If that was the nature of true discipleship, fixing our troubles internally and externally in this life, then Jesus wouldn't have modeled glorification on a cross, now would he? Listen to how this reads. It's, it says of Jesus, it doesn't, it doesn't make fun of your troubles because it doesn't make fun of Jesus' troubles. It says here, now my soul is troubled. He's bothered by the trial he's about to face. And you may be too for that matter. There may be a parallel. Perhaps you're bothered in your soul. Jesus acknowledges and Holy Writ says it, I'm bothered, my soul is troubled. And, and what shall I say? Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Even when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, may this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. What is he modeling? If you're not, he's modeling this. If you're not going to send me a ram out of the thicket so that Isaac can be saved, if you're not going to do that, if I actually have to finish what was started in Genesis 22, if that's my calling, and of course it is, then I'm going to face it. Glorify your name. And, and that's what he says. And he says it in prayerful language for us. He says it's not for him, it's for us. He says here, even in his troubled time, he manages to utter prayers for others, for us. He says, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, verse 28, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. It, the voice came from heaven at Jesus' baptism. It came from heaven at the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. And now it comes here. And the voice comes from heaven. And the crowd heard it. And the voice said that came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. You see the precept, right? It's, it's not about miracles to say it's your desire for miracles. No. Every miracle in the Bible is to testify to the glory of God in Christ and to bring bearing on the validity of this word that you now have reliably to entrust your thinking into and to find followership of Jesus from studying. The miracles were never meant to be on command. They were always seasonal and select. We both struggle with this though, don't we? You and I. Give me a miracle. Give me a fix. Give me an experience. If you, then I. These conditional propositions. Jesus doesn't operate that way with us. And if you have some experience like that, it was to get you to the place to understand that's not normally how Jesus operates. It's not if you, then I. It's all about the I. It's about Him. And this text says here in verse 30, Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, listeners. For us and for the first hearers, it's not for mine. This isn't a comfort to my troubled soul, per se. It's for you to hear. I already know what it is that I'm supposed to do. I want you to hear this. And verse 31 says, Now is the judgment of the world. The time, the hour has come. It's come now. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. It's an interesting statement, really. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Surely there will be an utter casting out at the end of time as we know it, right? With the second coming of Christ. But there was a strong sense in which Christ's first coming accomplished the defeat of Satan. There is a realization to our end times hope that frankly is most lived out in the local church. It's most lived out in the body of Christ. 
because we are the ones that have been filled with God's indwelling spirit, right? And so the realization of the end of time, of heaven, of, as scholars call it, eschatology, the realization of it, the initiation, the inauguration of it, is most seen with us. So it stands there to reason that we are blessed when we interact one to another as the church because we're the people where the Spirit is residing. We are tabernacling together. This is important. It's one of the many reasons that we should gather to worship. This text, though, says, Now is the judgment of the world, that is, those earth dwellers, as Revelation says, that follows the ruler of this world, that is, Satan. And this is the judgment. He is, he is cast out. Jesus on the cross through his glorification of dying, of being lifted up, he delivers the death knell on the ruler of this world, on Satan. And he thus models for us the true nature of Christian discipleship. The way that you have joy in following Jesus is to give up your hopes and dreams and vest yourself in Christ for your hopes and dreams. The Bible says, Seek ye first Christ and his kingdom, and all these other things will be added unto you. Well, if they're still important, that is. Seek first Christ, and he takes care of the details. Seek the details, and you never get Christ in the middle. And some of you need to hear that this morning because you continue to try to find joy in a thin veneer of Christianity that you, that you try to put on there after you've sought all these other things. And it's not that I want to take it from you. It's not that because I couldn't if I wanted to. I mean, if I just stared at you, man, to man and said, stop doing that, you wouldn't do it anyway. What I want to tell you is you will never relish Christ and enjoy Christ until he's in the middle. I mean, he just wants to worm his way into the whole thing. Not because he's selfish. No, no, no. He came to serve you but so he could show you the way. We're stubborn. We're thick. And so we need verses like this. This is the reason a passage like this would come up on Easter Sunday. is for us. He already cast the death blow to the enemy. The enemy flails in this epic but he is going to be put in his place at the second coming of Christ. Aren't you hungry for it? The Bible ends, Maranatha, pray, we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. Don't you want him to come? I mean, we'll have relative peace, pockets of relative utopia, but we won't have absolute peace here. We're going to have peace, peace, where there is peace when Jesus returns, right? And isn't that good? That's balm for our soul. Jesus' soul was troubled, and he went for the glory. Glorify your name in all the earth, and his death delivered the death knell to Satan's rulership. When Jesus calls a man, he bids him come to die. Will you give me a miracle? Will you give me an experience? Well, he's given you a miracle. He's given you a free offer of salvation, and he's promised you a miracle. He's coming again, and he's going to rule forever and ever. Won't you join us? If you don't know Christ, won't you? Won't you receive Christ today? Once you trust this message of salvation, that he who knew no sin became sin for you, that you might have salvation, it's a free offer. It's not what he wants from you. It's what he wants for you. And then, with the Spirit inside you, you learn there's no joy in seeking entitlements. There's no joy in constantly doing if-thens with Christ. And finally, there's no joy in being a holdout until you got all your questions answered. See, I used to think this way because I like to think about things. I'm analytical in that way. And 
I, I used to think this way. I used to think that the Lord needed to give me a bunch of answers to my questions before I would, would believe in Him, follow Him. And I'm telling you, on the authority of 1 Peter 3.15, there is some of that that is acceptable. I mean, in fact, there are answers in the Bible. If you, you have answers about theology, there are answers. And we are supposed to be prepared, always ready to give an answer for the reason for the hope that we have. This is true, 1 Peter 3.15. What that verse and others like it does not say is that we are to be prepared to give a reason and an answer to every question you have. We're supposed to give a reason and answer for the hope that we have, but not an answer to every question you have, because I have unanswered questions too. You know, I reached a point in my intellectual journey with Christianity that I was at a crossroads, that either I would trust him based on the data that I had, or I would continue to demand more and get it buttoned up enough that I, I would trust him. And the problem that I discovered with that way of thinking is it presumed that I was an intellectual equal with my creator. Is Matt Watson an intellectual equal with his creator? I hope you say a resounding no. Put yourself in, in the name of my name. Is blank blank. Are you an intellectual equal with your creator? The answer? No. Read the book of Job, especially the end of it, to see this. Where were you when I created the foundations of the earth? Were you anywhere to be found, Job? Silence. Yes, it's okay to ask questions, but no, it's, it's not okay to be an endless questioner of the goodness of God and the mercy and the justice of God. There are some questions, well, there are some questions that won't be answered until heaven, and then there are questions that you won't need answers to because they were bad questions. I mean, they're just bad questions. Haven't you ever asked bad questions? God, please let me marry her. Thank God that didn't happen. Right? I mean, really? I mean, we could go on with this. God, please give me that vehicle. Thank God I didn't get in debt to my eyeballs. I mean, we could go on with this, right? God, please, God, please, God, please. And you only way later, if, if you've even gotten there yet, say, oh, I'm really glad that, that, that he didn't give me that. Because I really didn't know what I wanted, really. I thought I did, but I didn't. Who do you trust? That's how we let out in this sermon. Who do you trust? Well, really, really what we let out within this sermon was the Christian religion wants more for you than you want for yourself. I'm testing that, that proposition with you. Do you believe it? Do you believe Christ wants more for you than you want for yourself? I suspect you push back against that and bristle a little bit at some level. I know I have. When Christ calls you to be a servant instead of being served after your salvation, is this then something that is better for me? Does he want more for me than I want for myself? Yes, he does. It's just really hard to get my mind around. When he says, look, I'm not going to fix your ever troubled soul. I'm not going to fix your every problem. I'm not going to give you all the miracles that you've asked for in this life. Are you comfortable with glorifying His name in your suffering? Or do you want answers to that too? I'm not saying your suffering is meager and unimportant or even that God's caught unaware. I'm just, I guess I'm saying it kind of like the late John Stott did, the Anglican rector. He said, I myself could not believe in Christ if He was distant from all my problems. But I can believe in Christ because He came down and got involved in the ugliness of the sin that we've created. Isn't that good? I often read that at funeral committal services because it's so good because 
I, I think it would be harder to believe, not that God owes me anything, but it would be harder for me to believe in his redemptive work and in him knowing better than I do what I need if it weren't for the fact that he condescended to come down to be born of the Virgin Mary and to live in this nasty world to redeem it for us. So I think he's trustworthy to me. Do you find him trustworthy? Join in with us. Join in with us if you find him trustworthy. Join in with us. You know, uh, we announced our, our membership class earlier in the service today. And I just want to, I want to urge you to take it. Some of you will say, well, I can't make all the sessions, so I shouldn't take it. Just, just come to one of them. Some of you will say, well, my, I can make it, but my spouse can't make it. Well, you come and then tell your spouse what's going on. Some of you say, well, I haven't been coming to church here long enough, and so I shouldn't come to that. No, 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 come because you're not just automatically going to become a member because you come to the class. This is, hey, everything we do, here's why we do it. This is what we believe. This is what we found to be true. This is the cost of Christian discipleship. And then we'll talk about whether or not you want to be a member after that. Maybe it's not a good fit. Coming to membership class is a natural, to me, it's a natural thing to do this time of the year because when you come to the membership class, you sit down with the pastors and you have these conversations. And you hear, this is what we believe the Bible says holistically. In fact, I sort of used this as my third point because I was thinking about, I was thinking all the questions you might have about theology, the questions you might have about doctrine, of the answerable ones, we've tried to give a reason for certain things and it's found in our, in our doctrine and it's in our membership class. But there are some that are not answerable and knowing the difference is important and that's about a conversation. And so I thought that would be a great place to point you because I can't counsel from the pulpit. He said, well, Pastor, what's with all this question? So that's our final thought for today. It's verses 34 through 36. First was, will you serve me? Well, I did. Second is, will you give me a miracle? Well, he has, and he's not going to do another one on command. The third one is, will you answer all my questions? And I've already really alluded to it, but, but look at how this works. Verse 34, now it gets serious, I said when I was reading this earlier. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. We've heard from the Old Testament that Christ remains forever, that, that he doesn't cease to exist, obviously. So how can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Well, who is this Son of Man? Well, clearly, the intimation is Jesus is the Son of Man. He's the fulfillment of the Law and the Prophets from the Old Testament. And he has to be lifted up, and they, they don't understand true discipleship. They don't understand the mission of the Messiah. It's not all locked in for them. And so this text here, it, Jesus replies in, in really a brilliant way, a, a brilliant way, a, a bright way, but it's an unexpected way. Look at what he says in these last couple of verses, and it really is about, will you answer all my questions? They have these questions about the Messiah, and, and maybe you have questions for, for the Messiah too. He says, Jesus said, the light's with you a little while longer. Longer, Walk while you have the light. Walk was an old metaphor for a manner of life in which you live, uh, your behavioral patterns. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, and he's already established, John's already established Jesus is the light. While you have the light, while you have me here, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. So much could be said about this, but it could be its own sermon. But just, just a little bit here, let me say this. It says that you believe in the light that you may, subjunctive, become sons of light. Believe that you may become. There is a part of your becoming that doesn't come before you believe. You believe and you become. You don't have the tools to become what you're not until you believe. 
John opens with, Yet to all who receive Him, He gives the right for you to become children of God, sons of the light. You don't have the equipment to become sons of the light until the point of belief. The Lord has to do a work in you, has to reveal Himself to you. And so what this is saying is while you have the light with you, he was saying to the first followers, but to us, while you have the light, while you're alive, in this, in our case, believe that you may become. And you're walking with Jesus, and you're listening to Jesus, and learning from Jesus will help you in your, what you're becoming as a saved person. But belief comes before all your answers get questioned, all your questions get answered. That's to be sure. Some questions, as I've said, will be unimportant. Some of them will be important and they'll be answered. But all of our questions don't get answered. So there are times when we don't know what's best for us, that Jesus actually knows better and Christ's followers know better. And we need to be able to to trust Him by His power today, to trust Him, not just for the answers to our questions, but for the very questions we should be asking. Because we don't always know what it is that we don't know. In fact, often we don't. Not as believers and certainly not as unbelievers. Until you have the Spirit, how can you know what you don't know? He's done everything that is needed for your joy in eternity. Deeper discipleship is deeper joy. While you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. His resurrection guarantees yours. It's like that kernel of grain that dies so that fruit can live. It falls. It's freedom and self-forgetfulness. And today we just simply want to invite you to join us on this journey. That's it. Let's bow our heads and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, bring many sons to glory. Glorify your name, we ask. Bring souls to salvation. Comfort the afflicted. Bring us to a deeper understanding of what you want for us that we might be able to testify that you know better than we know what we want and certainly what we need. Bless the hearers and these families. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take 30 seconds to reflect on God's word today and then we will have a a recessional played by our penis and you will be dismissed at that point. Let's take 30 seconds just to think and to meditate and pray. Amen. Happy Easter.